0: Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. It's time for our Bible reading right now. So uh, we're going to turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 4, and then we're going to going to go into the book of Acts chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible with you today, uh, but you'd like to read along with us, you can read on the screen, but we have baskets uh, in the aisles every uh, few uh, rows, and there's some Bibles in there. So um, uh, please grab one of those, and that's our free gift to you. If you don't have a Bible at home and you'd like one, uh, please feel uh, welcome to be able to grab one of those and take it home with you. All right, Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 21, and just two, two uh, verses here, and we're reading out of the New International Version. The lamp on a stand. He said to them, do you bring a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, do you not put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. Now we'll move to the book of Acts chapter 17 beginning in verse 16 and this is in Athens. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers begin to debate with him. Some of them them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting place of the er, 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 Eregapus... Oh, Lord, help me. That's the one where they said to him, "May we? I'm going to have about three or four times so you'll be entertained a little longer, Lord help us. Uh, They took him and brought him to the uh, meeting place of the Eregippus, just bear with me would you, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting place of the Eregippus, hello, uh, and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So uh, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The gods who made the world and everything in them is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives life and breath to everything else. From one man, he made all nations that they should inherit uh, inhabit rather the the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and their boundaries and their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far away from any one of us. Verse twenty-eight: For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold, silver, or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God looked, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with, with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Verse thirty-two. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, "We want to hear you again on this subject." At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, <laughs> and a woman named Demarius, and a number of others.
1: I think I'm on. Yeah, excellent. Welcome to church. Um, I don't know if you realise this this morning, but we're really privileged to have with us the world's uh, most amazing woman this morning. Uh, Her name's Kim Williams, and she uh, coincidentally has the same surname as me, and so I'm going to invite her up now. Um, As you know, we're doing a month on mission, and we're talking about um, some of the things that we do in the local community and some of the ways we reach out to people that. Um, we can connect with with the love of Jesus and one of the things we've done since before we even started as a church is mainly music in our local community and Kim's led mainly music and uh, very proud of the job her and the team have done uh, loving our community and reaching out to people so first of all Kim do you want to tell us a little bit about what mainly music is yeah
2: um, it's a music playgroup for families with children aged zero to five with an outreach focus
1: Very good. And so how's it going and what's happened this year?
2: It's going really well this year. It's grown a lot since January. Um, We've got new people inquiring every week, either through the Facebook page or contacting me directly. So we have a waiting list at the moment.
1: Very good. So what new things are happening then at Mainly Music?
2: We don't like a waiting list. No one does. So we're going to start another session back-to-back with our first one. So that'll still be on the Thursday. Obviously, we'll start a little bit earlier and finish a little bit later. Um, Yeah, so that's something that's going to happen to get rid of the waiting list. Um, Also, a Bible study. We've had a few um, mums interested in starting a Bible study. So we're hoping through them that we'll get more of the non-Christian families joining along and hopefully getting to know Christ. Very good. And, sorry, a nursing home. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We'd like to go into nursing homes monthly. and then hopefully maybe once or twice a term, taking the kids with us as well, so
1: yeah. So what would you do in nursing homes?
2: We would take the musical instruments and some songs and get the elderly involved with that and then when the kids come, obviously they'll get really excited with having the kids there and yeah, it'll be lots of fun.
1: Excellent, so it's a wonderful ministry of the church. You wanna just tell us how we can best get involved and support mainly music?
2: You missed a question, I think.
1: I missed a question, Are you right <laughs> I've got the microphone usually, but we've both got a microphone. I'm up here now. So, so what is your heart for mainly music? How did I miss that one?
2: Uh, um, Obviously, building relationships, friendships, um, seeing the families connect with their child. um, It's really great. The children love having the one-on-one time with their parents. Um, So making that happen in the group, Um, sometimes mums like to chat, but we're trying to encourage them to connect with the children, Um, and obviously our ultimate goal is to see them connecting with Jesus.
1: Excellent, I don't know if that prompt was Kim or the Holy Spirit, but uh, either way, I'm going to be obedient. Um, So... (laughs) How best can we best support this ministry as a church?
2: Okay, um, Obviously, prayer um, is the best way you can support us. We'd love your prayer. Um, and also, if you're interested in coming to a nursing home with us, we probably need some more volunteers. Um, yeah, so come and see me if you're
1: interested. Excellent. And last question. Um, can Thanks. I have a kiss? No. no. Thank you.
2: Hang on. While I'm up here, <laughs> 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 I had a little verse I was going to read out which kind of describes a little bit of mainly music is from the message, um, Ephesians 5, verse 1 to 2. It says, Watch what God God does and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behaviour from their parents, mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. So that's what we do at Mainly Music.
1: Awesome. Thank you very much, darling. And I just say, I think Kim's a a great example of what God can do in people's lives and hearts. Kim is naturally introvert, and I think the thought of her leading mainly music a few years ago is something that she'd be so terrified of that she couldn't even imagine it. But it's when we're obedient to God and we step out, God equips us for what he calls us to. And so I want to encourage you, if maybe you're more introverted in the church, I didn't plan to say this today, but if you are, um, to trust God, to step out, and he will give you what you need as you step into doing what he's asked you to do. So just wanted to encourage you in that. Well, it's already been mentioned today, but we're in week three of a series on mission. And the series is titled The Illuminated. Um, And it's really around the theme that Jesus was and is the light of the world. Um, But before he ascended to heaven, he kind of passed the baton. And then he started to say that you are the light of the world in terms of us being God's people. He said that we are the light of the world. And that's a pretty huge passing of the baton. And so what does it look like to be people who live their lives on mission? In the first passage that was read out today from Mark chapter 4... It's clear that as followers of Christ, people who are illuminated by the truth and empowered by his Holy Spirit, that we should be people who let our light shine. And so wherever we go, we should be unashamed in the fact that we love Jesus, that we're living for him, that we're sharing about him and we're sharing our lives with people. And we should be unashamed about being people who shine the light. Now, where is light most effective? It's most effective in the dark. We live in a very dark world. And so Jesus has empowered us to be his representatives here on earth through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our lives to the point where the Apostle Paul says, it's no longer I, but it's Christ who lives in me. And so in a dark world, we are called to represent Jesus and to be the light of the world. And that's an incredible privilege and it's a massive responsibility. And so the question I want to ask today is how do we do that effectively? And today I really want to hone in on some practical ways of how we can best connect with people in our community and our culture with the message of Jesus. And even though we're in a constantly changing world, uh, I think we can look at Paul's example in Acts chapter 17, which was our second reading today, and we can learn some things from him when he visits Athens and lives as a person on mission in a new place. Who knows that we are living in a new place? Just a few years ago, Officer was a bunch of paddocks. And now it's estates and infrastructure and people moving in by their droves. And so we are living in a new place. And so how do we best represent Jesus and live on mission in a new place? I think there's a whole bunch of stuff that we can learn from the Apostle Paul in this passage. And so today we're going to focus on what he saw. We're going to focus on what he felt, what he did, and what he said as we set out to reach people with the good news of Jesus and hopefully there will be some helpful things in this passage as we seek to reach our community with the gospel as well. And so first of all, look. let's look at the passage and let's look at what he saw. In verse 16, While Paul was sitting waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Recently, uh, a friend of mine, him and his wife, a young couple that I pastored in a previous church, have moved from Melbourne to go to New York. Uh, he works for NAB, he's an accountant, and so they shifted him from Melbourne to one of their New York offices. And he posted a, a photo recently of him sitting on the window ledge of a building that was about 20 stories up looking out over New York City with the Empire State Building right in the middle of the shot. So you can kind of picture where he was in the city. And he posted a company... Uh, posted a a comment that accompanied that photo and it simply said this, this city is massive two weeks in and I feel like there's still so much to see. I thought that's like the biggest understatement in, in the history of the world, like two weeks in New York and there's still plenty to see. I think he could live his whole life in New York and he probably wouldn't see all of it. But I've followed his Facebook feed since then and he's making a good shot of it. He's gone to an NBA playoff game, he's visited Ground Zero, he's gone to Central Park, and he's slowly ticking off all the things to see in New York, the city that never sleeps. New York is, I've got to say, the one place on earth that I've always had on my bucket list. It's the one place on earth I've always wanted to go to. And so every time I see like a Yankees cap or a a New York shirt or I hear Jay-Z on the uh, radio singing New York, New York, I always utter words of prophecy to my wife that we're going to be there one day. And I get the same response every time she just rolls her eyes. But I hope and pray that we'll go to New York one day. But my friend who finds himself in the Big Apple is in awe of the bigness of the city that he finds himself in. If we were to rewind about 1950 years, I think Paul was experiencing the age experiencing the ancient equivalent of my friend in New York as he arrived in Athens. It's a pretty awesome thought to imagine. I was thinking about it this week. We're talking about the great Apostle Paul, the man who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, a theological giant, a man who was an incredible church planter and missionary, traveling the known world, sharing about Jesus, and an incredible man. One guy I'm looking forward to meeting in heaven. And imagine this giant of a man, the Apostle Paul, not giant in stature, but giant in who God had called him to be, arriving in the glory of ancient Greece. I'd love to be a fly on the wall that day to see Paul arrive in ancient Greece. This is the first time he's visited that city, but he would have no doubt heard so much about it. Athens was the cultural capital of the world It had a rich history in philosophy with thinkers such as Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And it was kind of seen as the intellectual hub of the known world. It had an incredible architecture. And there were so many things to go and see if you were a tourist. I can imagine if we had arrived in ancient Greece in those days, we'd have a bucket list of things that we'd like to tick off. I'm sure we would have liked to have gone to the Acropolis The Acropolis of Athens is an ancient citadel up on a hill overlooking the city of Athens. And it has several buildings (laughs) within it which are all quite stunning. So I imagine we'd head for the Acropolis and maybe our first, first step would have been a place called the Parthenon, which was a magnificent temple structure built for and dedicated to the goddess Athena. It would be easy to see a structure like that and just be in awe of such an architectural achievement. Perhaps we would have liked to have gone to the Agora, where we would have got to see some of the amazing artwork done by some of the most famous artists from around the world. Perhaps we could have been more eager for some entertainment, and so we might have headed to one of the stunning outdoor amphitheatres to see you know, a live performance or Finding Nemo or something like that. We would have wanted to go and, and you know, take in some of the culture of the day. Or maybe we would have headed straight for the marketplace. Who so here likes shopping? Come on, ladies. Put your hand up. Come on, Kim. Put your hand up. Okay, there's lots of ladies, lots of people that like shopping, and so maybe your first thing would be to go to the marketplace where you could shop till you drop. There's so much stuff you could buy and see, but the marketplace is more than just shopping. If you went to the marketplace in a place like Athens, it really was a snapshot of the culture of a city. You could go there and see all the sounds and smells and vibrancy and life of a city and that would all be demonstrated really well in the marketplace. But in Athens, the marketplace was more than that. It was a place where people would gather and share their ideas. Philosophers would come and, and you know, share great ideas that they had dreamed up in recent times and people would go to the marketplace to hear all of these philosophies and ideas. It was like an ancient version of the internet, we click on a button these days to hear these ideas, but these guys would go to the marketplace and they'd hear these philosophers who would be very eloquent talking about all their philosophies and ideas from within their head. So the marketplace was an amazing place. And so like my friend in New York, Paul could have found himself in awe at the beauty of such a large city, but this is not what Paul sees. As John Stott puts it in his commentary on Acts, he says, first and foremost, what he saw was neither the beauty nor the brilliance of the city, but the first thing he saw was its idolatry. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Have you ever noticed that when people come to Melbourne, tourists come to Melbourne, they tell you all the things that they have seen or are planning to see, and you realise in their short trip to Melbourne that they will see more, do more, and learn more than we'll do in our whole city for a lifetime. They are more experts on Melbourne in a couple of weeks than we are generally in our whole life. There's lots of things people say, I'm going to see this and I'm going to do that. Never even heard of it, but it sounds amazing and it's in Melbourne. It's amazing how tourists seem to take in stuff more than we do. And the truth is that we can live our whole lives in a region, but never really open our eyes to what's actually happening all around us. It's so important that we have eyes that are open. This is true for the things that are beautiful in our culture. And it's true also for the things that are problematic. It's going to be hard to reach our community, isn't it, if we don't even know it? And so it's important that we know our local community. Paul looked at the city of Athens and he saw that it was full of idols. And I would suggest that if we really look at our community today, we'd see the same thing. We'd see a region full of idols. We may not find bronze statues on every corner or a grand temple built to a goddess, but you'll quickly see that in Officer and Pakenham and Berwick and Beaconsfield and Clyde and Warrigal, that our region is full of idols. You see, an idol is simply anything that takes God's rightful place. It's anything that takes our primary attention and affection away from God to things of this world. Our community is full of idols But we don't have to look at our community, do we? We can just turn the mirror on ourselves and we'll see so often that our hearts are full of idols. And it's really important that we examine our lives on a regular basis and ask the Holy Spirit to highlight those things that have become too important in our lives. And so here's some diagnostic, self-reflective questions this morning. What do you think about most? What's on your mind when you wake in the morning? What's the last thing on your mind when you lay your head on the pillow at night? If you had your bank account open today and we could look at that and do a diagnosis of that account, what would it reveal that you spend your money on? If you had your diary here today and you took it out and we looked through your schedule, what was your schedule tell us about what's most important to you? I think if we can answer those questions honestly, we can probably start to see what's most important to us, and it may just reveal what the idols could be in our own hearts. Do you think for some people sport might be an idol? Do you think that, you know, in Victoria maybe AFL is an idol? It's not for me, it's a stupid game. (laughs) And I support a stupid team. So definitely not AFL for me, but maybe for others it's a struggle. What about wealth and possessions? Do you think that these things have the potential to take people's attention and affection away from God? I've seen it happen so often when people are following God, but then all of a sudden the things of this world and their possessions and the next and the biggest and the best become so important that their affection and attention turns from God to the things of this world. Fathers, it may be their career, their family, their hobbies, or their holidays, these and many other things can evoke passion and devotion in our hearts which if we're honest with ourselves can sometimes be stronger than our passion and affection towards God I'm not saying there's a problem with any of those things you know I don't think God wants us not to have any money in the bank account or to live in a house or to enjoy holidays God's provided those things graciously for our enjoyment those things are not a problem until those things take God's place and then they're no longer a problem they've actually become an idol and that's a real problem Paul saw the city was full of idols, and as we start to recognize the things that become idols in our community, it will help us to share the gospel more effectively, because we need to wholeheartedly believe that the gospel meets the greatest needs of our hearts more than anything that this world can ever offer, and so we have the answer for people. It's the gospel. And so we need to hold dearly to the gospel as the number one thing of importance in our life. And as we do, as we start to realize what the idols are for people in our community, I think it will help us to better reach them. Our leaders have recently rewritten the values of our church. You can check them on our website. But one of them reads this way. Everyone worships something. We choose Jesus. Everyone worships something. We choose Jesus. Paul made it a priority to look at the city he was in to see what was really going on. And I wonder at a practical level, what do you see when you look at our local community? I think the stats of our recent census tell a story. And as we look at the stats, it will tell us a bit about our region. We have a region with a high percentage of people doing it tough when compared to other parts of Melbourne. Cadenia Shire is one of the hotspots for domestic violence in all of Australia. Youth suicide is high in our region, and many people feel lonely and isolated, and I think these realities have helped shape some of the ministries we do as a church at Follow. I think the stats tell us one thing. I think our experience at the food van and at the local school and with the council also backs up those stats, and so if we open our eyes to our community, we will see a community full of brokenness and idols and need, and the gospel has real answers for real people in those situations. I wonder what else we see when we look at our community. Did you know that just this year it's ticked over now so that on average six families move into our region every single day? Forty-two families every week move into Kadinia Shire. That means approximately 2,184 families are going to call Kadinia Shire their home in the next 12 months. I heard someone articulate something recently that I've known to be true ever since we planted Follow and it is this. That lives in transition are lives that are open. Lives in transition are lives that are open. We live in a community where people's lives are in transition. They move out to this area. They don't have friends and family. They don't know what's going on around. And they, they often feel very unsettled. They don't have a sense of community or belonging. It usually takes around two years for someone to come into a new area and to actually feel part of a new community. And in that time, research would show that everything is back on the table and people will be open to new things, new relationships and even new faith more readily than when they would when they're settled in a community. This is a massive opportunity for us as a church. Massive opportunity. We can provide a community built around Jesus Christ where there's a sense of belonging and purpose and joy. And in a community where people are unsettled and aren't connected, we have a great opportunity to reach people. And it should fill us with a real optimism for mission. There are people that are looking for something, and we believe that we have the answer, and the answer is Jesus. So, what do we see when we open our eyes in our community? We see a place full of idols. We see brokenness and dysfunction, but we should also see great opportunity. And I think that's what Paul saw as well. He saw problems and he saw potential. And so the first application point today, if you're a note taker, you can write this down, is that we should pray into the problems and into the potential of our region. We should pray into the problems and pray into the potential of our region. This is what Paul did. This is what he saw. And so let's move on now to what he felt While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed. Greatly distressed, not mildly irritated. Greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. I wonder what we feel when we observe our community and people in our local community. What is our overwhelming feeling when it comes to reaching out to those people that don't yet know Jesus? Do we feel comfortable? Are we apathetic? Are we urgent? Are we passionate? Do we feel anything? Do we think about people at all? I think these are all challenging questions for each of us when we consider people in our community. Last weekend, some of the men from Follow went to the Belgrave Heights Men's Convention and one of the speakers was a guy called Carl Beach. Carl Beach is a church planter and evangelist from the UK and he was coming to share with the men at this convention and he shared a bit of his story about what it was like when he first came to know Jesus. Now, most of us have heard these stories before. Someone, you know, is lost and broken. They come to know Jesus and then, you know, all of a sudden their life turns around and they feel joyful and passionate and all those sorts of things. But Carl's testimony was a little bit different. He said when he came to Jesus, he was actually a mess. He said he couldn't go anywhere. He'd be driving in the car. He'd be walking down the street and he couldn't stop weeping because he would look around at people around him And he realized the vast majority of people we lay our eyes on every day are headed for eternity, separated from God. And it broke his heart. And it revealed the calling on his life to be an evangelist and church planter. And I found his story uh, so encouraging, but at the same time, very, very convicting. I thought to myself, how much do I love people? Because what he felt was a great desperation to see the lost found. When Paul arrived at Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. And it got me thinking, why was he so distressed? And I think there's a couple of reasons for it. The first reason is this. I think he was distressed about the glory of God. One of the poets from Paul's day said that in Athens, it was easier to find a God than it was to find a man. This was literally a city full of idols. When we go back to the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, Second book in the Bible, chapter 20, we see the story of God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses on the Mount Sinai. And as we read through the Ten Commandments that that were God's heart revealed to those people, we see that number one was simply this, that you should have no gods before God. You should put no gods before him. The second one was this, that you should have no false idols. And so as Paul comes into a city full of idols, I think his heart grieved because the things that were important to God's heart were important to him, and he looked at it and he was greatly distressed because the glory was going to man-made rubbish rather than going to the God who deserves all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. We have a God alone who is worthy of glory. We have a God who loves us so much. We heard about it at communion this morning. Jared did a great job this morning, but he gave up his one and only son to die on a cross so that we could be forgiven, saved, and have the hope of eternal life. Jesus, the Son of God, is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the name above every other name. He's been exalted to the right hand of God. And when he returns, Scripture tells us every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He alone is worthy of all the glory and honor of our lives. At follow, we have a very simple vision and mission. It's up on there every week. Our vision is Jesus. Our mission is to follow Jesus in our community here and outside in our local community. Why? For his glory. We do all this because we want his name lifted high over the region of officer and beyond. We want Jesus' name to be famous amongst our friends and families and people in our communities, and we need to live our lives for the glory of God above all else. I think Paul was greatly distressed because of the glory of God. But the second reason I think he was greatly distressed is that when people are distracted by idols, their attention is taken away from life-changing relationship with God, and it's placed on man-made things. More idols, less God. It sounds a little bit like our community. Many people don't want God in their lives and they don't believe they even need him because of all the stuff they accumulate and all the stuff they're distracted by. And the sad reality is this, that they cash in their eternal reward. of Ultimate joy, ultimate fulfillment, ultimate peace, ultimate life love in all of its fullness in the presence of God they trade in what they have this inheritance we've been given and we look forward to for man-made stuff that promises so much but in the end delivers so little that's a tragic pitiful exchange and so I think he was distressed because he saw these people who'd taken their eyes off God I think this is how the devil works from the very beginning. He has convinced mankind that they don't need God because they can be like God. And so he keeps people so distracted that they never give God a second thought. That should break our hearts. And I've been praying that God would stir my heart again for the precious people around me that don't know Jesus. Paul was greatly distressed. And when we are gripped by a kingdom vision for our community, I think we will feel distressed as well. And I think that actually shapes our lives, our prayer lives that we've heard about this morning, our priorities, our time. It affects every area of our life. And so the application challenge number two for the note takers. Ask God to stir our hearts with a passion for people in our lives that don't know Jesus. This is what Paul saw. This is what Paul felt. Let's look at what Paul did. Well, first of all, he didn't stay distressed. He didn't just stay distressed, he allowed that emotion of distress to actually drive him to action. He did something about it. Faith without works is what? Dead. He did something about it. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with who? With those who happen to be there. Ray said something really helpful last week. You may or may not have heard it before, but he talked about the Great Commission and that word to go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything Jesus taught, commanded. And the word go is not so much go in the Greek, it's more as you go. In other words, as we go into our everyday normal lives, we are to be people who live our lives on mission. I think it would be a really interesting study to look at Christ's earthly ministry and take note of how many miracles... He performed and how many life-changing conversations and encounters he had with people he hadn't set out to meet. Jesus was someone who meandered with purpose. He kept his eyes wide open to the needs of his community and he responded in real ways to what he saw. I just love that Jesus was interruptible. Have we ever seen a man that had a greater purpose, that had a greater vision to follow his heavenly father than Jesus? Absolutely not. And yet he was distractible. He was interruptible. As he went along with this incredible purpose on his life, he was never too busy for people. And I love that about Jesus. Jesus and Paul immersed themselves in their culture. Dave and I in the office this week wrestled over the word immersed. Because immersed can sound like compromise. But it certainly doesn't have to be. Because we're called by God to be in the world. But not of the world. In the world, but not of the world. If we aren't in the world, then I'd like to propose that we'll never reach the world. And so we need to immerse ourselves in the life activities of our local community in deliberate and prayerful ways, motivated by a desire to know people, to listen to them, to love them, and ultimately to reach them. Recently, I've been trained to be a church planting coach. Since we plan and follow, I've had a person that's coached me once a month, in the first year or so anyway, and we would Skype, as a guy in Sydney, but now that I've been trained to do that, I'm actually coaching a guy, who's a little bit older than me, but he's planted a church recently in Brisbane, just out of Brisbane. I was talking to him via Skype the other week, and um, it's an opportunity to chat through current issues and to help him wrestle with various aspects of planting and pastoring. And a couple of weeks ago, he said to me, um, I'd like to carve some more time in my schedule for mission. It's similar to what Ray mentioned last week about people being busy and the thought of adding anything more to our schedule is very unappealing. And so I asked him the question, have you got any more time available? And he said, not really. And I said, none of us do. And so I would encourage you not to try and find more time or add something more into your schedule, but rather use the time and schedule you have more deliberately. You see, many people see mission as an activity to do. But mission is not an activity to do, it's a mindset to have, and it's a life to live. And so I regularly serve as a volunteer outside of work hours at our food van. I volunteer every week, I volunteer at our breakfast club at Officer Secondary College. And I do that, but I don't see it as my mission activity for the week. I don't do those things and then tick the box and go, good, we've done mission now, and we can do some other stuff for the rest of the week. I see it as part of the rhythm of my life, and my whole life is mission, Everywhere I go, every, everything I do is an opportunity for mission. And so how do we immerse ourselves in people's lives? Well, I think there's a very simple way to do it, and that's to include them in our lives. You know what we, most of us have in common? Every single night we have dinner. We're going to have it anyway. So why not invite someone to join in? Most of us have a lunch break at work. We sit around and people most of the time these days, they sit on their phone and look at Facebook and play you know, one of those fruit games, whatever they're called, and they do all that stuff that's really, I'm sure, very interesting, but they often just isolate themselves and do their own thing. If you're in a workplace surrounded by people who are playing fruit games at lunchtime, how about asking them to have a conversation, to have a coffee, to hang out? If you're a stay-at-home parent... Nearly every day, you'll go and pick your kid up from somewhere, kinder or school, and we see it as a task or a duty, see it as a mission opportunity. You walk into that school ground full of people that don't know Jesus, ask yourself, who can I meet today? Who can I ask about their week? Who can I connect with? If you go to a cafe every week or a couple of times a week, go to the same cafe every week and get to know the people that serve your coffee. Listen to what they're going through in their lives, ask them questions, remember their name. And you might just find in time that they'll do the same in return. Our lives are mission. This is what Paul did. Not only did he reason in the synagogue, but he also shared as well in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And so application challenge number three. How can you use your current schedule and activities to more deliberately engage in mission? We've seen what Paul, what he saw, what he felt, what he did But what about what he said? I think this is the part that freaks most people out the most when it comes to mission. What if someone asks me a question, what about someone really smart asks me a question about dinosaurs, or about evolution, or about something, and they're smarter than me, what do I say? And so we don't do anything because we're scared about the questions that might be asked. Why do we assume that people who ask us questions know more than we do? Look at the passage today. They were worshipping a God with an inscription that says, to an unknown God. They can't have known too much if it was an unknown God. Paul took that opportunity, didn't he? But I think I want to give you three words today that will really liberate you from that fear of not knowing what to say. These are the three words. You ready for them? Write these down. I don't know. Do you know what? We're never going to know everything about God. Why? Because our brains are puny. God's the creator of the universe. If we can whittle God down in some little box that we can fully understand, then he's no longer God, we are. So there's going to be aspects of our faith that we will never fully understand or comprehend because we have an infinite God and we're finite beings. And so we should know that because it's called faith. It's going to be aspects of what we believe that's going to have to be received simply by faith. Now, I don't want to give you an excuse to go, oh, well, I'll just live by faith and I won't answer anyone's questions. Because I think it's important that we keep learning. And growing in our faith and seeking to answer those questions. But what I want to say today is this, that you don't need to know everything about everything before you share anything. Don't need to know everything about everything before you share anything. And I think it would actually be much better for you to say, I don't know, than to bluff your way through a dumb answer or an empty cliché. People aren't looking these days for people who know everything. They are much more interested in journeying with someone who's real. And so if you've been a Christian for even a short while, you know the basics of the gospel. We all sinned. We've all sinned. We all deserve to be punished. Jesus was God in human form. He came. He lived. He died for our sin. He rose again, conquering the power of sin and death. He's coming back. We can be forgiven. We can have the hope of eternal life. If you know that, you know enough to have a conversation. And this is how Paul started his conversation in verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, apparently very smart people, began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Why? They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about what? Dinosaurs, evolution, Jesus, and the resurrection. The basic truth of the gospel. Now, in this situation, he was dragged before these very intelligent people and they went into more depth. He talked about God being the creator of the universe, the sustainer of life, the ruler of all nations, the father of all humanity, the judge of the world. These are all good things to know and you should learn these things. But the truth is, most of you are sharing with everyday friends. And you might have some weird and wacky friends, but I highly doubt that any of them are Stoic or Epicurean philosophers. And if they are, just pray more. Most of them are just everyday Joes, and they're asking you simple questions, and they want to see what's going on in your life, and so you'd be much better saying, I don't know, I'll find out. That would be a much more adequate answer than a stupid answer. And so this, what Paul said, this this message has not changed. We have the same message. We talk about Jesus, that he lived, he died, he rose again, he's coming back, the good news of the gospel. The message is exactly the same, but I want to propose this morning that the method can't be. We've got to keep thinking about our culture and understanding our culture if we're going to actually be effective in reaching them. It's not just what we say, but also how we say it. I want to finish today talking about this and the reality that we live in a postmodern world. Many of you here this morning didn't grow up in a postmodern world, but rather in the age of modernity. Modernity went from the 1600s, some of you were there, right through to my dad, the 1980s. And in modernity, there was a way of thinking. And in that era, by and large, most people believed in absolute truth, that there was truth out there that was true for all people if you found it, if you could find it. In the Western world, Christianity and the church was seen as the pillar of truth. Churches were respected and seen as an integral part of our community, and the church was seen as a legitimate authority and keeper of truth. I don't know if you've noticed this, but most people don't see the church or Christianity like that anymore. And a big part of that is our fault. Things like a sexual abuse scandal, where horrific things happen and were swept under the carpet, the misuse of power and money and authority, has been absolutely disgraceful, unChrist-like, and an absolute embarrassment to Jesus' name. And it's damaged the church's reputation in irreparable ways. But the other reason, aside from that, is that our culture has changed. And everyone has recognised the change and adjusted accordingly, except the church. We're still stuck in the 1600s, the 1980s. We keep trying to reach people in the same ways we did in the modern world, but in a postmodern context. And we wonder why we have very little impact. We're no longer living in the modern world. We're living in a postmodern world, and the majority of our society no longer believes in absolute truth. They believe that all truth is relative, and so you have your truth and I'll have my truth, and they're all true because we believe it's true. And that's the way our culture, by and large, works these days. So there's been a huge shift in our society. In the modern world, if you talked about Jesus' resurrection in uh, basically what was a scientific age, people wanted you to prove it from science. These days, in a postmodern world, they're often less interested in you proving it. They'll check that out on Google. They're more interested in knowing What difference it makes in your life. This is another change in the modern world. And I think in our modern culture, uh, one of the biggest idols of our culture has been tolerance. And therefore, the greatest sin of our culture is intolerance. And so people used to look to the church as a guide for what is right and wrong. But now, if the church even talks into that space at all, they're quickly accused of being bigoted. Not loving, even hateful. People don't believe in absolute truth anymore and they don't want to hear it from us. So we need to change the way that we actually communicate truth. People aren't looking to the church as a keeper of truth. They now see us as the attackers of freedom who are trying to push our views and agendas on society, taking their freedom away. I'm not talking about the difference between older people and younger people. I'm talking about a seismic shift in our culture and worldview, the one that we're surrounded by and immersed in. And I think it profoundly impacts the way that we do evangelism. Profoundly impacts it. The message has never changed. As I said before, it's exactly the same message as Paul. But the method has to continually change. When you think about successful companies or even advertising on TV, and you'll quickly see that nobody that is successful today in those realms is still doing things in the same way as they did in the 1600s or even the 1980s. But it seems to me that the church is always the last to see it. stuck in a time warp. When it comes to evangelism, we want to keep doing things the same way, and we think that standing on a soapbox or knocking on doors as a primary strategy is still going to be the most effective, but we need to wake up and realize that we're not in Kansas anymore. We're not in the magical world of Oz either, but we are in a postmodern world. And so, how do we best reach people? I read an article this week that was fascinating. Google have done a lot of research over the last few years about what makes a successful team in a postmodern world. And in this article, it talked about the most important thing in a successful team, if you boil it all down, is one word, and that word is trust. And then it went on to say, what are some other key characteristics of these successful teams? What are the consistent actions? Listen to what they are. They were teams that listened first, they showed empathy, they were authentic, they set the example, they were helpful, they were humble, they were transparent. As I read it, it hit me in the face. It it seemed to me like what I was reading is a blueprint for evangelism in a postmodern world. Sam Chan, in his recent book called Evangelism in a Skeptical World, lists five things that postmodern people connect with, and they're very similar to the list from Google. It's authenticity, hospitality, testimony, stories, and creative arts. Those first four are all about genuine relationship where we see people as people rather than people as projects. So people are looking for authenticity, people who are real. They're looking for hospitality, people to do life with, to eat with, to have coffee with, to journey with, to have in their homes and vice versa. They're connected to testimony. People may argue with our theology, but they can't argue with the testimony of a changed life because it's our personal experience. And they connect with stories, stories of tragedy and triumph and changed lives. In a community uh, of lives in transition, lives that are open, we have great opportunity to live these kind of lives, to best connect with people who we happen to meet. But you'll notice that these things take time. The soapbox and the knock we're looking for instant results. But as I said a couple of weeks ago, in a postmodern world, I think we should pray for the instant. We want our friends to be following Jesus right now. So we should pray, Lord Jesus, do something in their heart right now. We're praying for that. We're believing for that. But at the same time, we should be willing to embrace the long-term. Because a lot of evangelism is just long-term, genuine relationship in people's lives where you actually earn the opportunity to speak truth at the appropriate time led by the Spirit of God. And so application challenge number four, be authentic, build relationships, and share your story in that order. Let me just finish 30 seconds with the response that Paul got in verse 32. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. I guarantee you, some of them will still see today. When you share the good news of Jesus, they'll sneer and they'll think that's ridiculous and they'll call God a sky fairy. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, Also, a woman named Demarius and a number of others. There were three C's in the way they response. Responded. Some thought he was crazy, some were curious, and some were converted. And it will be exactly the same for us today. And I think it's important to remember that as we build relationship with people, as we shine the light and share the truth, that we can't save anyone, but God can. So our job is to go, to sow, but only God can grow. And so application point number five, keep sowing seed and keep praying for a harvest. From Paul's experience in Athens, we can learn so much from what he saw, what he felt, what he did and what he said. And so what's my prayer from today? My prayer is that we would think deeply about our world and about our community. That our hearts would break afresh for the lost. That we would do something about it by living lives of deliberate mission every day. That we would share the good news of Jesus with those in our lives and we would see our friends come to know him. Wouldn't that be awesome? people right now in our lives who are far from God would come to know Jesus and I want to tell you this morning God wants to use you, fill with the Holy Spirit, stepping out in faith, building relationship with people to show them and to share with them who Jesus is and what he's done for us.